Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Hi, I'm Joshua Wilson, CEO of Lake Point Advisory Group. I'm excited to have you on a, for our online Food for Thought event, what you need to know to put healthcare to work for you. Lake Point Advisory Group is a retirement planning and wealth management services firm. We host these monthly events on a variety of topics that we host that we hope are beneficial to our clients. We do have a large audience with us today, and thank you for joining. Uh, everyone's uh, camera and microphone is off, but we will take questions if you'd like to type your question by clicking on the Q&A icon at the bottom of the screen. Today, I'm glad to welcome Todd Furness with us. Todd has over 30 years of global experience in private equity, consulting operations as a senior level operating executive. He currently serves as a CEO of GTC Group, a private investment firm dedicated to creating value for shareholders in the middle market, technology-enabled business services, financial services, and healthcare companies, and the correlated real estate. In the last 12 weeks, Todd has been on fire with his new book. His podcast views have been over 130,000, and he's had over 13 million media impressions. Now, I've known uh, Todd for many years now, and his life circumstances have really given him vast experience with the healthcare industry from multiple perspectives, and they lead him to develop a real passion for healthcare. He has a strong desire to, to address and rectify our current system's shortcomings, and Todd, that is, uh, that's a lot of those. Uh, Todd has been featured as a guest headline uh, healthcare expert for mm-hmm. Fox News Radio, ABC TV News, the Scott Becker Private Equity Podcast, Bullseye Brief, and the Jim Bohannon Show. Todd hosts his own podcast titled Civil Discourse and recently wrote a book about healthcare reform titled The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. He's published articles from Healthcare Reform in Authority Magazine, Inside Sources, Grit Daily, and the Dallas Morning News. Todd, what a time to be talking about healthcare. Uh, Todd, it just, from a financial planning perspective, it feels like to me that the government is doing everything they can to raise the prices for our clients. Um, you know, when we think about long-term planning, we think about the costs that are coming, but man, it just seems like the government is not on our side and they seem to be making things more difficult. I'm hoping to glean some things from you today, Todd, on what we can be doing with our clients and what our clients can be doing in their own lives to improve, not only improve the quality of their health care, but also get it at a much, a much better price. Todd, you've uh, got a big job today. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. It's a delight to be here with you. And I've, I've got to confess to the audience that I've known Joshua long enough that I can call him Josh. <laughs> yeah, that, that is uh, something that, the, that, my, that my friends know about me is uh, I'll answer to Josh. I, I, I'm kind of formerly Joshua, but, but yeah, Todd, we have, we have been friends for a long time. Okay, again, thank you for being with us. Todd, give, give us a, a, a start. First of all, tell us about the current state of healthcare in the United States and what are our, maybe our biggest problems we're facing? So I, I could probably spend two, three hours just on that question alone. So I'm gonna give you one really simple answer. And this is perhaps uh, not well known, but if you think about it just for a minute, it makes crystal clear sense. When you go to the doctor, the first thing you ought, to, you ought to say is, how many people are in that relationship with me? I go to the doctor and the first thing I, ca- I ask is not how much does the service cost, it's how much is my copay or how much is my deductible? So that means the insurance company's in the middle of that relationship. That insurance company then has the ability to instill what I call commercial regulations, meaning they're only going to reimburse the doctor if the doctor follows the insurance company's rules. 
not healthcare rules, the insurance company's rules. In addition to that, the doctor has to be licensed. That's been around for a long time. Licenses come at the state level, not the federal level. That means the state government's involved with you. If for some reason you're on Medicare or Medicaid, that means the federal government's involved with you. So all of a sudden, instead of having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a doctor, you now have several people in that relationship. And what I've been trying to drive is this concept of, you know, this time honored called consumerism. We need to have a direct relationship with the provider that we're dealing with, and that provider ought to know who we are. And if you think about it, a cash payment is frequently going to be at a lower price, meaning that the provider would pay would take a lower price for that service offering than if the provider has to go through the insurance company. Because if he has to go, he or she has to go through the insurance company, they have to file a claim, they have to get the codes right. If they don't get the codes right, they could face civil and potentially even criminal liability. Then they got to wait for the payment. If the payment is done on the first instance, that's wonderful, but it's still 60 days out. So there's a cash flow issue. And it could be either 90 to 120 days out, but it could be rejected altogether and you may have to file the claim all over again as a doctor. So cash on the barrel head is a, it's a powerful tool. So uh, to, get, to make matters only worse, the reality is you don't know who your doctor works for. Over the course of the last several years, for example, United Insurance has been buying physician practices. So United now owns, or I'm sorry, United now employs directly or indirectly over 50,000 physicians. So does that mean you're going to see the insurance company when you go to see the doctor? What about the conflicts of interest that are implicit in that? Who's the duty of loyalty to? Who does the primary relationship exist with? And if it's not the, the, the insurance company, then maybe it's the hospital. If you're now in, in the hospital's uh, framework of physician or care providers, then what does that mean? So we've lost the plot here in terms of the direct relationship between buyer and seller of services. And that's, if I, if I distill everything down, if there's only one takeaway from this entire conversation, that would be the most important takeaway is we don't have a direct relationships a direct payment relationship with our provider. Well, so basically what you're saying is when we speak to a doctor, you know, we tend to, because of the convenience that we've sacrificed in, you know, just handing my insurance card or Medicare or whatever, because of that, because of that, there's so much going on in the background that it's actually stripping us. That convenience is coming at an extremely high price. Is that right? That is exactly right. So before we started today, I, I gave an example that was one of the more egregious examples that I've heard. Uh, you know, unsurprisingly, I now have access to a whole bunch of data on prices. And part of that's because the prior President Trump <clears throat> issued an executive order mandating pricing information be made transparent. And prices are different, unsurprisingly, for uh, what we call the BUCAs, which is Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, United, Cigna, and Aetna. Those are the four biggest payers. And what we found is that two things. One, we have essentially an oligopoly, meaning it's a concentration of power in those four com companies as payers. And then in similarly and conversely, we have a concentration in almost every urban market of the providers. There are about three or four providers in every market and only three or four providers of consequence. So by way of example, here in the DFW Metroplex, there are three companies, three providers that control 91% of the market. It's Baylor, it's HCA, and it's THR. Now, if you add Methodist in there, it's 98% of the market. So what kind of negotiating power do you really have? Not a whole lot. But having said that, prices that are charged by any one of the four providers are different to each of the four payers. And so I'll give an example that's not DFW-based, but in one case, we found an, a, a dialysis syringe just the syringe, not the dialysis service, but just the syringe. It's what goes in the arm is all. Exactly right. Which would cost $5 to purchase, was being charged to the insurance companies, and they were paying $6,000. So the, the idea that, that, this is a, that anybody in the industry is genuinely interested in cost reduction 
is uh, I think a, a confidence misplaced. So I think we need to figure out, and this is one of the one of the things I advocate in my book is how is it that we take more control of our of our own uh, circumstance and drive prices down ourselves as empowered patients who are focused on better outcomes, direct relationships, and taking care of you know and taking a, a greater responsibility for caring for ourselves. Well, Todd, you know, I think a lot of us may. And I understand what you said about the really only being three to four major providers, but I think a lot of us would still say, hey, I, 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 my doctor's a great guy. I trust my doctor. He, he's a great doctor, but what, what, am I, what, what are we missing when we focus on the quality of, our, of the doctor that we're choosing? What are we missing? So you're, I, you'll notice I didn't say anything about <clears throat> a doctor being a good doctor or a bad doctor. I'm yeah. saying what is the context in which that doctor operates? And what I'm advocating is you change the context proactively. And how do you do that? I, I propose that instead of saying to the doctor, I'm going to pay you with insurance, you say to the doctor, I'm going to pay with cash. That means you, it's really clear who's responsible to whom for what. You're going you're gonna to give me a service. You're going to take care of me, and I'm going to pay you cash for that, which is better for both of us. You get the cash now. And as a result of that, uh, I, I get to the, the all of the education that's associated with that, and you don't have to file a claim. But Todd, that's pretty scary to hear to, to say I'm responsible for something that I don't know that I know the the costs of. I I love that question, and I, I really I'm grateful for you to, for asking that. Um, you may be the only guy because I know your background from from Alabama, but you may be the only guy on the call that actually knows how to change the oil in your car, <laughs> right? I can tell you, I have in the past changed the oil in my car when I was young and impetuous, but I can tell you now, I couldn't, I don't have the foggiest idea to know how to change the oil in my car, but that doesn't prevent me from knowing how to get my oil changed, does it? I can, I can go to the, I can go to the dealer and I can say, hey, okay, what, you, what are you going to charge me for the oil change? And they'll give me a price and I can go across the street to Jiffy Lube and I can say, hey, Jiffy Lube, I need an oil change. Can you give me a price? And odds are very good that the Jiffy Lube uh, franchise is going to give me a lower price than the dealer. And so I do a risk reward analysis. And I said, well, would I rather have the support of the dealership if something goes wrong? And what's the probability of something going wrong? Or would I rather go to Jiffy Lube and pay a lower price and not, not have the support of the dealership? So I can do a risk-based a risk -based analysis. I don't have to know how to change the oil in my car. But guess what? I also don't have to worry about whether or not I, I'm going to get a surprise bill from the guy who actually changed the oil because he was out of network. And so now uh, because he was out of network, they're going to, the, the, uh, the dealer's going to now send me an ancillary bill for the out of network oil change guy. That's in addition to my cost for the oil change itself. I don't have to worry about that. I also don't have to worry about that. The fact that I'm going to get a separate charge for the oil itself uh, that's been upcharged. And I don't have to worry about getting the oil filter charge in addition to that, right? I got a one flat fee. The, the P&L is the responsibility of the, of the uh, dealership or the Jiffy Lube in each case, and, and off we go. But that's not the case in healthcare. And what happens, and I have I've countless examples of this. A friend of mine goes the other day, it was a couple months ago, his wife is, is uh, suffering extreme abdominal pain, doesn't know what the issue is. She goes to the emergency room. She, and he has the prescience to say, to the, uh, when he calls the ER to say, are you in network for my provider? And they say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah we're. So he goes, goes into the ER, turns out she needs to have her gallbladder removed, emergency surgery. So she gets her gallbladder removed by the doctor in the ER. All good, covered by insurance, right? And not so much. The doctor who performed the surgery was out of network. So he gets a $30,000 bill. Guess worse. Guess what? Anesthesiologist out of network gets a bill for the anesthesiology, $5,000, right? So where on earth did this become permitted? Now, the way to counter that is to go back and say, you, I have no privity of contract. You have no contract with me. I'm not paying you. So if you want to charge me something reasonable, we can talk about that, but I'm not paying you because my contract is with my insurance company, which has a contract with this provider, and I am not paying the out of network charge 
for the surgical the surgery the physician who performed the surgery or the anesthesiologist that'd be an example of a, of a, something you could worry about but what i propose is using tools that are currently available to us to make cash available so we move from away from the current model and what do i mean by that if you think about what's going on right now we have created healthcare insurance which I, uh, Devin Herrick, who's a, a healthcare economist, called uh, the current model of, of uh, tax deductions for benefits for, empo for employers a perversion of tax policies that, that has existed for 80 years because it started under FDR. So what's happened is we've created insurance to be a model of a layaway plan for healthcare. Hmm. In other words, we've encouraged people not to take any personal responsibility for their health necessarily, other than you just don't like feeling not good. But we've taken the position that anything you do is going to be covered by insurance subject to your deductible or your copay and your premium. And so what we've done is we've moved the responsibility away from the individual to the insurance company. And it gets worse because when you think about it, what is an insurance company? An insurance company is somebody who takes payment to protect you against something that is statistically improbable to occur, right? right. Running joke in the industry is that everybody thought the insurance guys were the dullards and not very bright. Those are the smartest guys in the world, right? When you think about it, they're getting you to pay, pay for something that you, you are hoping never to use and they're hoping never to have to pay for. Wow. Right, so it's a little counterintuitive. So what I'm saying is, hey, let's use the tools designed in the form of flexible savings accounts or health savings accounts. Let's move some money into those areas and let's take the money that's invested in those accounts or that's in those accounts and invest it. And what happens is you can move a certain amount of money every year. Uh, it's, it's characterized individually and uh, per couple under the tax code. Let's move the maximum amount of money. And, and when you do that, it reduces your taxable income. So there's a tax advantage to doing that. The second thing is, is that any money you make in terms of dividends or capital gains, ordinary income, whatever, that uh, inures to your benefit by virtue of the dollars invested inside of that HSA are also enjoyed tax-free. And the, the, the challenge is you can only spend that money on healthcare expenses. So the trick is, and the way to really kind of double down on making this work is you, you put as much as you can into your HSA, you invest that money for a good organization like Lake Point, and then you, that earns a return and it grows. At the same time, what you do is you, you move your deductible to as high as you feel comfortable. And I'll give an example. My son, and this is a little bit of an unfair example, but it, it's using hyperbole to make the point. My son was 30 years old. He was unmarried, had no kids, obviously. And so I said, hey, John, what are you paying for your uh, insurance? And he said, he told me the number and I was, I was stunned. And I said, what's your deductible? He said, my deductible is $10,000. I said, what are you paying monthly for your premium? He says, well, I've got a pretty good plan. It's $86 a month. Now, the reason he's able to get the $86 a month is because he's got the $10,000 deductible. Now, the question is, lots of people can't afford a $10,000 deductible because they might not have that cash on hand. But if you start moving money into your HSA, then you can have that money available in the event that you have a need for such a deductible to be met. But your insurance premiums are going down, so you're essentially creating your own second dividend on the capital invested, right? So let's imagine you put the maximum amount of money uh, available into your HSA, which is currently about $7,200 per couple. And you can put more money in and it just won't help you with your tax numbers. But then let's say you move your deductible to as high as is possible and you have a $10,000 deductible. Your monthly premium will go down so precipitously that it's effectively operating as a dividend on your HSA contribution because now you have more free cash because you're, you don't have to pay that money in premium. And whether it's 100% of the premium that you're paying individually or a portion of the premium because your employer is, is matching, either way, you're creating what I would call effectively a dividend by virtue of what you're doing. Uh, some, and we'll, we'll need to distinguish between employer plans and those who are already retired, but let's, let's, let's start with one, uh, those who are currently employed. All plans don't offer HSAs, Todd. 
um, you know, I, I, and I'm not sure that that's not my area of specialty of why, why some do and why some don't. Um, are you, are you, are you kind of somewhat advocating? Obviously, everyone's situation is different, but can you speak to that, the different plans and some offering HSA and some not? Yes. Yeah, so what the code HSA actually is for healthcare savings account. Yes. And so uh, what, what the code actually says is you can only have HSA, uh, HSAs uh, used when you have high deductible plans. And high deductible plans are anything over, I think, $1,300 per person, or I think it's $2,600 per couple. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to encourage people to, if, if you don't have that available in your, with your employer, go ask them for it. Go, go be an, you know, just, just ask and be an activist to some extent. I'm not saying you be improper or uncontrolled in your request. I'm just saying, hey, guess go, go re reach out to your HR person and, or your benefits administrator and say, hey, I'd like to have the ability to use HSAs. And so what are we doing about that as a company? Let, what are we doing about supporting individual uh, and personal responsibility? And let's see if we can move down that path. Because at the end of the day, there are all sorts of things companies can do to save a tremendous amount of money. And this is particularly true with self-insured companies. Well, talk to me about, about uh, that, that for a second. You know, obviously, smaller businesses in particular are devastated by the rising healthcare costs. You know, if you're AT&T, you can easily absorb that and and continue to offer those benefits, and the the the, the employees uh, have the benefit of not knowing the difference. But small firms, which employ over half of the um, half of the United States population, uh, they're the ones that just act, get absolutely stunned by these rising healthcare costs. And even if they're matching, you know, fifty percent uh, of the of the coverage, for example. The, the cost of doing business is going up. And then of course the, the, the employees got to take some of that, which makes those employers less competitive. Is there anything that a small employer can do? Um, a absolutely. And depending upon your size, to the extent that you can become self-insured, which some smaller companies can't afford to do either, but to the extent that you can use self-insurance, then you, you actually are in a position to drive your costs down. If you think about it, what is, you know, roughly uh, 83%, 83 to 85% of our economy is, is services based, right? And so that means that your number one cost in all probability or number two cost is likely to be people. And of your people cost, about 20% of that or 25% of that is gonna be benefits. So it's a huge item on your P&L. So unfortunately, what happens is because it's so technical, CEOs tend to hand this off to the HR leader and say, go solve for this. And the HR leader usually call, you know, it usually takes it on, but the CEO doesn't really know what the HR person does. Mm -hmm. And so I've taken the liberty of in the last uh, couple of months of saying to about two dozen CEOs, hey, how do you, or where do you get your, uh, insur your health insurance? And the answer is inevitably incorrect. Uh, so uh, here's a quick little example. I'll say to the CEO, where do you get your insurance? And he says, oh, we get it from uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. I said, nah, no, not really. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you get it from your employer. Your company pays for your, uh, provide you with insurance as a benefit. Oh, well, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. And I said, where do you, where did your employer get it? Ah, get Blue Cross Blue Shield, ah, not so much. I said, what do you, he says, what do you mean? Well, you got it from a broker. And the broker gets it from the carrier. Well, how does the carrier establish premiums? The carrier establishes premiums with the State Department of Insurance. So the result is not only does the employee not have any ability to negotiate with the carrier, the employer has very limited ability to negotiate with the carrier because the carrier's premiums have been established by the State Department of Insurance. And the State Department of Insurance has, uh, is operating on what is essentially a cost, I mean, I'm oversimplifying this, but it's essentially a cost plus model. You're, what you're doing is you're saying, I've got a loss ratio that's a fixed percentage of the amount that I'm taking in. And then anything beyond the loss ratio, I get, I as the employer to get to keep. I mean, I'm sorry, I as the carrier get to keep. And so that in, in many states, it can be as high as 35% of the premiums collected. It's a huge number, a huge percentage. And so when you start, if you start digging in to the amount of money that these executives are making, uh, or the way that they're paid on, in terms of option value, which is a, you know, based on the value of the stock that then is valued as a, as a multiple of the EBITDA, every dollar that falls to EBITDA or earnings 
uh, is then multiplied by their you know, by by the purchase price multiple. So they're not necessarily encouraged to shrink that percentage, and they're not really insure and encouraged to shrink the number overall because it all comes back in the form of compensation. And the compensation numbers are staggering. But also, if you take a look at the at the investment opportunities, if you look at the the value of the stock price for the major insurance companies versus any of the major indices, they just beat the heck out of them. I mean, it's like not even a fair race. And if you take a look at the earnings calls for any of these companies over the course of last year, the numbers are staggering, ranging, ranging from, you know, two, three billion to five or six billion dollars of earnings per quarter. It's, it's, it's just remarkable. Wow. So by, by, at the same time, you can, the other side of the coin is you can hedge by, by investing in insurance companies. You know, Todd, when you, when you start hearing about these exorbitant salaries and this exorbitant costs and, you know, it, it, it starts to feel like an indictment against capitalism itself. Um, what, what, what has the government done to enable these things and really kind of, I mean, and so at least by my figures, it seems to me like the government's not just enabled, it's mandated uh, these sorts of things happen. Can you speak to that? You bet. So first thing is the way that we have a one, the first anomaly that gave rise to this, and I'll give you some facts and figures for it, uh, really started, as I mentioned earlier, under FDR. FDR in 1943 said, oh my gosh, we're getting ready to go into a, a world war. We're going to need labor out the wazoo, and we're going to have labor inflation that's uncontrolled because there's going to be competition for, for talent. Well, to put this into perspective, in 1944, we had a 1.3% unemployment rate. Now that is that sounds that sounds amazing, but let me it's it's more amazing than you think because we had almost a hundred percent participation in the labor force, and the labor force included included everybody over ten years old. Wow. Yeah. So today the labor force only includes people. I think it's over sixteen and goes to sixty five, and you have to have all these you know bells and whistles in terms of your of, of qualification for being in the labor force. But even with that, our labor force participation rate is only about 62, 63%. That's been falling, correct? Yeah, exactly right. Now, without getting into contemporary politics and unemployment issues and supplemental payments and that whole nine yards, let's just stick with the health insurance anomaly. So in, in 43 or 44, FDR comes out with this stabilization plan and caps wages. That was the, but what he did is he said, you can't pay people more but you can give them benefits in the form of insurance. So we're gonna let the companies who provide insurance as a benefit to their employees deduct that as a business expense, but we're not gonna tax the recipients of that benefit as in on income. So the current cost of that one issue of not taxing the recipients of the benefit is worth a half a trillion dollars. Okay, so that the the issue that issue was again adopted and, and uh, put into law again in 1954, and has been in place ever since. Now, before FDR created that law, only about 10% of Americans had health insurance. Today, m people who are in the workforce uh, and employed is about it's about 90%. So the reason I call the book, you know, in fact, I have a copy here. The reason I call this book the 60% solution is because about 20% of our populations on Medicaid and about 20% of our populations on Medicare. Uh, everybody in the middle is on some, primarily is on some form of private insurance likely obtained through their employer. So that's how we got here. Um, and there are all sorts of things that have happened uh, over the course of the years that kind of entrench that, ranging from who can get a license to be a doctor to uh, the practice of medicine. but what happened, there are a couple of things that give us some, some measure of hope. In 2003, a guy named John Goodman worked with President George W. Bush to implement something called uh, the HSA. And that started the ball rolling. The IRS then adopted that as, in the code, and it's been in place since that time. That's a good news story. Um, the second good news story is the pricing transparency that ha happened under under uh, President Trump. Now, people would, might say, hey, well, Todd, you're not really talking much about the ACA. Uh, and you're right, I'm not, uh, because what that did is it really catalyzed consolidation in the industry. It, mean, it really 
uh, allowed companies to aggressively acquire one another. So the big ate the small and became bigger. And then we had a concentration of, uh, of industry and, and competitive capabilities in larger companies. So uh, I, I, there are some good things about the ACA. There's some not so good things about the ACA. But today, I, we, we just want to lend our focus to how we can help people pay for their health care and uh, kind of make money out of it, if you will. So that's a good point. Yeah, and, and so I'll, I'll circle back then to um, we talked about employers offering HSAs, and obviously you advised um, you know, considering at least a high deductible plan, which would make someone eligible for the HSA. And if your employer doesn't offer such a plan, maybe go to HR and and ask for that uh, for that options. So you can make that they care about that. What about those who are already retired? Is is HSA an option for them? It is, and you can use HSAs in that instance for the same for the same reasons. Um, you'll have, you know, because Medicare, ha, you know, most people are on Medicare who are going to be over 65. You may have a particularly affluent group who's elected to retire early, in which case they're not 65 yet. Uh, so they may not be eligible for Medicare. Uh, but in that instance, you still are, are paying a premium. And you're some, still have somewhere, somehow likely getting some form of insurance. And therefore, you can use HSAs to change your deductible. Uh, and make it as those numbers higher. Uh, what's astonishing to me, a little, uh, and not not such a little amount of astonishment, quite honestly, is that the HSA numbers in terms of the maximums you can put away uh, don't necessarily map to the maximum uh, deductibles. So we've got some work to do as an industry in terms of map matching those and, and getting the highest deductible possible. For, for many companies, that's just not available. But um, I would encourage that, and I would encourage the use of, of HSAs to the extent possible. If companies are feeling even more aggressive and more generous, and they want to do more for their employees, I would encourage, encourage a combination of what's called flexible spending accounts and health savings accounts. And there's a slight difference there. If you'd like to, we can talk about that. But that's another way of, of further dampening the blow of, of the cost of healthcare. You, you've mentioned several of the benefits of the HSAs, but one of the things you, you had mentioned to me, I think, in a prior conversation maybe is that only like 10% of Americans use them. Why yeah. is that? Well, what the, one of the common complaints is that HSAs are difficult to, uh, to really get into either because the cost of the administration is high or alternatively, because people who might be interested don't make enough money, right? So the, I had a conversation yesterday with somebody who said, yeah, but HSAs really don't work for somebody who's only making $35,000 a year. Well, that's not going to really pertain to your client base here. But the I advocate a different solution for that, which still encourages HSAs, but has a matching function coming from, from government to encourage consumerism and to fund those HSAs with cash coming from other sources. The other thing is that, you know, while you can say HSAs are not really helpful for people who are making less money, uh, that's to some extent also a little bit of a, of a red herring because anybody can put money into that HSA. It's not just the employee themselves. So the employer can contribute to the HSA, family members can contribute to the HSA, and, and others can as well. You know, you're... I love that you're encouraging us to be more aware of where our healthcare dollars are going and understand what's behind those things. It's it's kind of like you're encouraging more consumerism um, in the in the industry. Um, how how does that consumerism really benefit um, the the consumer? I mean, we were it's it's kind of that shop around mentality and and ask more questions. Can you give me an idea of some of these consumer questions that we should be asking and who should we be asking them to? Well, you should be, let's imagine that you, you've taken my advice and you've gotten an HSA. Now all of a sudden that's your money. That's your money. Josh and his family get to roll whatever you haven't used in one year to the next year. So if today it's $10,000 or $5,000 and you've only used $1,000, that means you can roll $4,000 to next year. That's exciting news. Because guess what? You get to contribute another $7,200 on January 1, or your employer can if they want. Uh, and now all of a sudden you have $11,200 in your HSA. And the next year it could be more and, and so on. So, But you get to keep whatever's in that HSA that hasn't been spent. So now all of a sudden you go down to the, you say your doctor tells you you need a blood test. Okay, well, I'm going to get a blood test. 
you go to LabCorp or Quest or you know one of the other providers, and and they say you you ask the question, what's the cost of the blood test? And if your insurance company is paying for it, it could be anywhere from one hundred seventy five dollars to over a thousand dollars for the blood test. I've seen prices, and I'm not making this up, as low as eleven dollars for a blood test. So now all of a sudden you say, well, okay, I can't get it for eleven, but I can get it for a hundred instead of a hundred instead of the insurance company paying one hundred seventy five. I'm going to pay a hundred. I'm paying that out of my pocket, out of my HSA, and that's all good because now I've still got, I've, I've saved money on the purchase of that blood test. And the same happens with x-rays, MRIs, CT scans, dialysis, doctor's visits, you know, everything. You know, I, I kind of learned this on accident uh, <laughs> a few months ago. I, I'd gone in and I wanted, and my doctor recommended, let's do a battery of tests. Let's get all these blood tests. And I was all for it, you know, just total health. And uh, as I was on the way out, hey, do you want to use your insurance? Um, and because uh, they didn't have my insurance on file or something. And and so I asked, since it was since it was just blood tests, well, is there a, is there a cash price? And she said, yes, we actually have a negotiated fee with LabCorp, um, it's $150. And so I said, well, I'd, I'd just rather, that's fine. I'll just take it. So I swapped the card. Well, turns out they the, the, the biller made a mistake and ended up submitting it to LabCorp anyway. So I ended up getting a you bill. From, sending it to your insurance company. Yes. Send billing, send it to insurance company. Anyway, you know, obviously the doctor, they, they, they straightened it out afterwards. But anyway, as this, my story goes, I ended up getting a bill from LabCorp for like $3,200. <laughs> <laughs> and of course I called the doctor and they, they saw it and they straightened it out and they got the bit, that bill removed. But uh, it was just that simple of, do you have a cash price? Do you have a negotiated price? Yes. We have a negotiated price with LabCorp 150 bucks. And, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I couldn't, you could have asked for a breakdown and tried to get it even, but for me, that was an outdoor price. That's, that's, that's easy to take. And yeah, you're, what you just told me is, is worth over $3,000 just on those blood tests. And think about it. All you did was ask the question. Yeah. It wasn't, you didn't have to be embarrassed to ask. You didn't feel like you didn't have the right to ask. You said, hey, by the way, is there a cash price on this? As though, I mean, it's just another question. It's just, there's no, nobody should be intimidated because I think this is one of the other problems is people feel so anxious. We started this conversation by talking about what I call the asymmetry of knowledge, right? You, you don't feel like you know enough about healthcare to ask good questions. And you know what? You know what's really tragic is the industry reinforces that idea. That's really tragic. The industry is telling you, and this is one of the why I would hate for single payer to ever come about, is because that's the ultimate manifestation of the industry telling you and government telling you you're not smart enough to figure this out, and only we are. Yeah, the you know the the, the government pushing, you know, enforcing this, and obviously cause a lot of the big dogs to gobble up the little ones. And I cannot imagine what going from, from four carriers and DFW to one would go to prices and of course profits too. And it's, it's interesting because we tend to, you know, one side of the aisle tends to, to focus on the, you know, the free market and the other focuses on the government. But the fact is, is crony capitalism is the government getting involved in capitalism um, it is, it's not one or the other. You literally can't put it just on one side or the other. It is when powerful politicians start dictating and telling businesses how they have to run that these um, oligop oligopolies and ultimately potentially monopoly, um, that's the enabler of these things to come about. Um, well, and think about it. Then they amass enough cash. Guess what they get to do? They get to they get to fund politicians' campaigns and they get to lot hire lobbyists. I don't know about you, but I've never in my life been able to afford a lobbyist, <laughs> and I don't know anybody else who has. But uh, I, that's not something I'm going to do. But I, I think one of the things that also people should realize, you know, one of the things I've heard from from people in the time in the past is, yeah, but I, I go to a faith based hospital and they're a not for profit. That's that's uh, just the biggest red herring ever, because the running joke uh, that I heard once from a, a nurse ethicist, if you can believe this, uh, was that no margin, no mission. Oh. And the other, the other question was, uh, the other comment was, uh, everybody makes a profit in healthcare. It's just some pay taxes and some people don't. 
And wow. if you take a look, if you dig into the numbers, you'll find that the amount of indigent care provided for non-for-profits uh, is dwarfed by the amount of tax savings that they get. Uh, as a result of their nonprofit status. So don't be misled into thinking that non that not-for-profits have this greater and more noble uh, ambition. They're businesses too. Uh, and what it just means is that any surplus is being used for other purposes. Usually and frequently it goes into uh, management salaries. But I will say one of the things, my first guest on my podcast was a delightful, one of my dear friends, uh, Dr. Jim Dennison, who happened to be, who ha happens also to be not only a theologian, but also an ethicist. And I asked the question in the podcast, uh, is it moral for a service provider to profit from rendering services to a patient? Because to me, it's a gating question for all business models in the, in the industry. And the answer, the answer, unsurprisingly, was yes, because that funds innovation and talent and a bunch of other things. But there are lots of people out there who are uh, who are now trying to assert that the answer should be no, and that has all sorts of negative implications for the industry and for our country. Wow, um, and folks that are, that are listening in, please uh, take it take a moment. If you have questions for Todd, uh, please feel free to contribute them. I'm a, I will continue talking to him for a bit longer, but I do want to give you all an opportunity to, uh, to hit, hit, hit Todd with your, your tough questions as we, as we chat. Um, Todd, we, we, beginning of this conversation, we, we um, talked about HSAs and you kind of went through the benefits uh, I'd, I'd love it if you kind of circled back on that and slowly give us kind of like the the couple of bullets of this is what it this is what it is this is how it's different and this is why it's it, it may be advantageous. You bet. So an HSA or a health savings account is an account that you get to put money into, and the money comes in in a tax free basis. And it, what it does is it lowers your taxable income by an amount equal to the amount you put into your HSA. So if you say- It's I'm, kind of like a traditional IRA or 401k, but, it's, but it must be used for healthcare. Exactly right. You nailed it. And you can contribute up to a certain amount. That number changes every year. So should, you should always uh, check with your benefits provider or alternatively your accountant. But the number changes every year and it's unique to the individual and to a couple or, or household. Um, so I believe the number currently is maxed out at $7,200 per couple in terms of the amount of, of income you can take this year and put it into an HSA. Now, you can put other money into the HSA that's from your balance sheet and not related to income, but it won't reduce your income other than the $7,200, which will reduce your taxable income. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that money can be invested, the meaning it can be invested out of the HSA account itself into securities, bonds, certificates of deposit, whatever you want. And the earnings realized by that investment are also tax-free. So the account grows with the earnings. And then uh, you can it's owned by the employee, the individual, and it rolls from one year, any surplus rolls from one year to the next into perpetuity. And you won't be taxed on that money unless you use it for non-healthcare purposes. Uh, and that's about it. So again, it's very basic. It's a great model for uh, reducing your tax obligations, but also for uh, providing for your healthcare expenses in a tax advantaged way. And I, it's, it's really unfortunate that, to me that not a greater percentage of our population is not taking advantage of this today. Todd, you, that was a great explanation and great, you know, I appreciate the bullet by bullet. Uh, but what about some mistakes? Um, it seems simple enough, but are there, are there mistakes we should look out for in using health savings accounts? Sure. Well, you've got to have confidence in your administrator who's administrating that. You got to make sure they're reputable. Um, and they're in plenty of places to find reputable trust, uh, re reputable administrators for your HSAs. Usually that'll be done in coordination with your benefits provider. Uh, they'll have a plan and an administrator associated with that. The second thing is you got to make sure you don't spend it on stuff that's not healthcare related because you don't want to get uh, into a place where you suffer an audit or some something else that would be uh, time consuming and you might have to pay a penalty on that. 
Um, but aside from that, it's hard for me to understand why people wouldn't want to do this. Uh, those are just the two the two major issues. Make sure you spend it on healthcare, and make sure you, you have somebody who's trustworthy. And then you know also you want to make sure that you your money that's invested isn't tied up in a way that you can't use it if you need it. Yeah, I'd imagine that if someone's starting a brand new HSA, Todd, that you know, that, that option to invest is probably not one they should take advantage of early on because they may be using that. But as the balance grows over years, when you, when it's not used, then maybe investing those dollars uh, may be, maybe something they can consider. And it's going to depend upon the affluence of the individual, right? If they are putting more money into the HSA, then they might want to invest right away. If they're, you know, a starter family and they want to put as much as they can, but they don't have a whole lot of extra cash lying around, like many of us, uh, then they may want to start off a little bit more slowly and, and invest in year two or year three rather than year one. But they still get the benefits of the tax advantage, and they should also immediately get the benefits of a reduced premium because they've got a higher deductible plan. Wonderful. And you, you mentioned earlier a flex spending account, um, and, I, and I don't want to get too far off on something that's not the main topic here, Todd, but would you briefly maybe tell me the difference between the HSA and the flex spending account or the FSA? Yes, thank you. And I actually go, again, I go into those in my book and, and give you a little chart uh, that kind of gives all the differences between the HSA, the FSA, and the HRA. Uh, but the FSA, just to talk about it real quickly, is the amount that the employer contributes into an account. You don't have any control over it as the individual other than you can spend at it, spend out of it for certain expenses, virtually the same expenses that are covered by an HSA or covered by an FSA. But uh, additionally, it's owned by the employer. So whatever you don't get to keep, I mean, whatever you save over the course of the year, whatever's left at the end of the year does not roll over to your benefit. It rolls over to the employee employer's benefit. And that's the, those are the biggest differences. So the HSA is something that can follow the employee, the employee really owns the money. And that's one of the benefits of it is that the employee really owns the money. If they changed employers that could follow them to the next employee, employer, just like a 401k could. With an HSA, it's right. always the employee's money. With an FSA, if you leave, the employer keeps the money. Right. Big, big, big difference there. Yes. So, you know, obviously... Uh, you may make a compelling case for the use and the growth of HSAs. Is there anything we should be thinking about encouraging um, as, as constituents? What should we be encouraging our policymakers do to help encourage the uh, increase the use of HSAs? I'd like to see them be more flexible. And one of a great example, especially given that you're a wealth management firm, uh, is the, I would love to see the ability of HSA owners to have more flexibility in, in who, to whom they can give those HSA dollars, not in terms of providers, but in terms of uh, successors. So right now, if I die, for example, I can only leave my HS, HSA to my spouse. I would like to be able to leave my HSA to my kids. And that would be an example of giving somebody a leg up in the future where, you know, you know, again, it's only can only be used for healthcare costs, but right. I would like to be able to use that for, you know, give that to my kids. And that'd probably be the biggest one. The second one would be expanding the amount of money you can put into your HSA. I think that would be powerful. Um, and I think if we tweak some of the tax rules that to allow that, that would be enormously beneficial. Now, there is a, one other thing that I will share with you, and this is incredibly uh it's going to, to uh, hit the news wave soon. I just released a podcast on this, which is this concept that I called to, I referred to earlier called indexing. One of the problems we have, the lower end of our socioeconomic spectrum is you know, for people on Medicaid, you qualify for Medicaid until your household income is $51,000 a year. Well, that's, you know, society and government has decided that's the good thing to do. And so let's assume that we're not going to change that. I'm not advocating a change. I'm just talking about how do we make that a better uh, approach to healthcare. So nobody asks the question, well, what happens if somebody gets a raise? A pretty good raise right now is 5%, right? So if I get a 5% raise on $5,100, that's not going to really cover the cost of health, health costs, health, healthcare that I've now incur because I'm no longer on Medicaid. 
So the average cost for a family of four of, of healthcare is, is roughly twenty twenty five thousand dollars. So I've I've increased my my gross income by five percent of fifty one thousand dollars, but I've increased my cost by twenty to twenty five thousand dollars. So I've essentially gone into what I call purchasing power purgatory. Uh, and so what we're seeing in those ranks is that people are turning down the raise. Right? Oh. Words, they're, they're turning down increased income opportunities. They're turning down increased professional responsibility or vocational responsibility. They're, in, they're turning down job opportunities because they can't afford not to get Medicaid. And yeah. they're terrified not to get Medicaid. So what I've advocated is this combination of personal responsibility and government support that says, look, what we ought to do is we ought to encourage people to put money in an HSA starting whenever they can. And let's imagine it's $25 a month. And then what we ought to do is we ought to say the government institutions are going to match that on a five or six to one basis. So let's imagine that it's $25 a month. Six times 25 is 150. So now instead of having uh, just $25 in your account, you have 175. 25 plus 150 is 175. And then multiply that times 12, that's now, now you've got a real number, right? You're, you're over $2,000 a year that you, you've got accrued in your HSA. Whether you use that or not, because Medicaid covers your costs, you're now building yourself an off-ramp to get out of Medicaid and be uh, able to use a high deductible plan to cover your costs at a lower rate. Now, the question would be, well, Todd, how are we going to pay for that? It might not surprise you that I would suggest that uh, we already have a regressive tax policy by not taxing benefits, and that's costing the U.S. Treasury a half a trillion dollars. So that's an easy fix that would easily pay for the indexing and, and make everybody and create far more consumers of healthcare uh, in our country today. You know, your 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 mention of Medicaid you know, reminds me of, of, of you know, obviously Medicare, and a lot of retirees um, run into that problem where they're not really sure how to avoid those Medicare surcharges. Uh, any, any recommendations you'd have for retirees and how they can be mindful of their income in retirement to avoid those Medicare surcharges? Well, uh, I can't go into too much detail. I would just argue that getting kind of plan B and some of the other supplemental plans is usually a very, very good idea. And it usually makes a great deal of economic sense. So I, I would encourage some inquiry there um, because I, you know, most of the people who are over 65 feel like, feel very differently from those who are on Medicaid. For, for Medicare recipients to say, look, I paid into the system for now 30, 40, 50 years. So I'm just getting my own money back. And it, they, don't, they don't feel the same way about that as they do Medicaid, who are people who haven't paid in the system yet uh, and are getting a benefit. So I would say, you know, look into supplemental plans that allow you to avoid some of those uh, surprise costs. Very good. Well, uh, as we actually have a, a question here from, uh, from Vicki uh, for Todd. Todd, once you retire, can you keep the HSA? Yes, you can. The HSAs are yours forever. Whatever you keep in your, whatever you have in your HSA is your money, and you can spend it on healthcare expenses as long as you have a healthcare concern. And hopefully, that means, uh, you know. And then, and then, when you don't have healthcare concerns, you can leave it to your spouse. Awesome. Well, Todd, we have a few minutes left, so um, I really appreciate you coming on. Now, your schedule has been very busy. Um, luckily, I could pull some friend strings and get get in get in on uh, on some of this, and you know, to have someone with uh, with 13 million views in the last few weeks and uh, on Fox and and those sorts of things. It's been a real privilege to have you, uh, Todd. Appreciate your time quite a lot. Uh, but take just a moment, if you would, wouldn't mind, Todd, and just tell us a little bit about your book. What can people expect? That from you know, obviously, there's can be overlap with this podcast. What what would they what would they expect to learn more of in depth if they were to be interested in in, in obtaining your book? Well, thank you, Josh. And it's always a pleasure being with you. I always love the conversations we have, and this is another example of one of them. Um, I advocate five major points, and I start off uh, with a, a very personal story. Um, and if 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 you don't care about healthcare, you may you may or may not care about the first the first story. Uh, my I'll give you a, a little bit of a hint. Um, when I was 17, unfortunately, my parents were involved in the worst aviation disaster in the history of the state of Georgia. Uh, they were on a commercial airplane going from 
one place to another, heading to Atlanta. And as a result of that, uh, they hit some weather, uh, bad things happened with the engines, bad things happened with the brakes, and uh, as they lost power, they had to crash land. Uh, and they, the good news is the pilots did a fantastic job of crash landing the plane. The bad news is because the brakes had gone out, they couldn't stop the plane and they hit a propane tank. It exploded. Uh, the vast majority of the passengers were immediately killed. My, my father was killed immediately, and my mother um, fortunately lived, but unfortunately suffered immensely. Uh, she had over thir two thirds of her body was covered with third degree burns. She had amputations and broken bones and had 100 major operations in the first before she left Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta. Uh, she was hospitalized no less than once every year for the next four decades of her life. Uh, so I learned about healthcare uh, from that perspective. When, as a 17-year-old looking after my mom, I had my, my grandmother was very helpful. My uncle was very helpful. I had a sister that was very helpful. So I don't want to suggest by any, in any stretch of the imagination that it was all me, but I certainly learned about healthcare from that perspective and the need for things like patient advocacy, uh, being physically present, uh, how to care for loved ones, how to monitor medications, how to keep in touch with doctors, uh, the issues associated, the complications associated with moving medical records, the issues associated with uh, HIPAA, there were complicating factors, uh, having a medical directive and, and all these other issues. I then went from there into um, my, one of my accounts when I was with a little company up north called EDS uh, was Blue Cross Blue Shield. And so I learned a little bit of the technology needs of healthcare insurance companies. And then I went from there into advising through my, uh, the consulting firm that I work with, uh, advising eight out of the top 10 healthcare, academic healthcare institutions in the United States. Um, and then lastly, uh, I had the uh, fortune or misfortune as the case may be of being involved with a set of physician-owned, especially surgical hospitals that you know all were in a bad situation and, and had bad people involved in it. So I've seen the industry from a lot of different perspectives. And I said that there are basically five major muscle groups in the industry that need to be moved in order for everybody to be successful. Uh, first, we need to be much more focused and oriented on preventative care. Uh, use your primary care physician far more aggressively. Two, we need to uh, use uh, we need to improve systems that includes IT and accounting. So we have much more homogeneity and interoperability there. Three, we need to improve HSAs and their utility. Uh, four, we need to really focus on pricing and make, make it less hidden. And then lastly, we need to uh, focus on the eliminating or reducing the hyper-regulation. So that's what you'll learn about in the book. Very good. And um, again, the, 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 the book is um, the 60% Solution Rethinking Healthcare. And Todd, we have a few more questions that have come in if you have a few more minutes for us. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so uh, Tim and Carrollton asks if you have an opinion or insights into the health cost sharing programs versus traditional insurance. Yeah, well, yes, I think those are also good ideas. Uh, again, you're going to have some of the same issues, but you need to dig into the detail, make sure that you understand what you're getting into because their healthcare sharing is very analogous to insurance is just it just operates differently and with different loss ratios and different expectations so um i'd i'd say it's it's a usually it's a better instance than than insurance itself and it's probably not as good for those who have the ability to do so to control their costs directly by self-insurance understood another question um from john and debbie at 65 on medicare how much can you contribute to an HSA yearly? A uh, couple can do right now for this year. And again, it changes every year, meaning it increases every year because of inflation. Uh, $7,200, I believe, is the number for 2021. For, for a couple or for a brand? Yes, for a couple. For a couple. Okay. Understood. And there's no limitation. Because you're over 65, the ability to contribute to your HSA does not go away. Very good. I want to make sure I got John and Debbie's question answered properly. I, I, I do believe so. Thank you. And again, Todd, thank you uh, for being on today. Again, the book is The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. Uh, it's definitely gone on my on my must-reads list now, Todd. You've uh, you've opened me up to some interest I didn't know I had, but uh, <laughs> a lot of changes out there. Also, um, the podcast he hosts is Civil Discourse. 
Uh, that's that's great growth uh, growth momentum, Todd. So congratulations on that. Again, we appreciate you, and uh, for everyone who joined us today, I want to thank you uh, for, for 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 joining us. Um, you can email us um, at service at Lake Point advisory group.com. Uh, if you come up with a question that you didn't get answered, please feel free to, to contact us. Our phone number is 214-771-3363. Thank you so much for being a part of today's discussion. We look forward to seeing you at our next Food for Thought discussion. Thank you, everyone. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.